Isaiah chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. As we study this major prophet that we introduced last week. And uh, I just I was told by some that the fonts are kind of small this morning, so I apologize ahead of time for those of you that uh, can't see from the back. Um, I'm tweaking this, you know, this, the fonts and stuff like that. So hopefully I'll make it bigger for you next week for those of you that have difficulty seeing the, the PowerPoint this morning. Just look in your Bibles. That's where you need to look. Okay. All right. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2 through 9. We hear the word of God. Isaiah writes, Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. For the Lord speaks, sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Why will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds. Not pressed out or bandaged, nor softened with oil. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your spirit would fill us now and lead us into your truths. Guide us, Lord, we pray, that we would have understanding this passage. That even as we study the, the, the revelation of, and of Israel and Judah's sin before you, that, Father, we would look to ourselves, that we'd make sure that we ourselves are not living in sin, that we are not outwardly worshiping you, but inwardly far away. Father, we pray that you would cause us to be people who are always mindful of our need for Christ and always mindful to walk in a manner worthy of Christ, to live in a manner worthy of the Holy One. Father, we ask that you would enable us now to to understand and to apply your word to our lives. Be glorified through the preaching of your word. We pray, show us Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. In our church history class last week, not this past, not today, but last week, we learned about the pilgrims, the pilgrims. The pilgrims came to America to establish a, a Christian society, a Christian colony. They wanted to come here and, and establish a, a society where they would, could join together with other like-minded Christians and have a world where their, their lives were guided by biblical principles, by the truth of God's word. That sounds good, I think. I mean, I think we would like to have a, a world that is guided by God's word, that lives according to God's word. 
And it was a, a, a worthy desire upon the part of the pilgrims. But the pilgrims, within one generation, came to realize something that many Christian parents came, also have come to know. That is, Christian parents don't always produce Christian children, right? You can teach them all about the gospel. You can speak to them. You can live out the gospel. But no parent can make their children into Christians. It is a work of God. And so the problem, the challenge for the pilgrims is that by the next generation, nearly half of the settlers in that colony, it was called, eventually became known as the Massachusetts Bay Colony, nearly half had, could not give a testimony of their conversion. They could not profess that, yes, I came to saving faith in Jesus Christ at this moment, at this time, in this way. But yet, in order to maintain an, an outwardly Christian colony, Christian society, the, the settlers or the pilgrims continued to baptize their infants. Now, that was, they practiced infant baptism then, those days, and that's how you entered into the, the society, became a citizen, you became part of the, the, the covenant community. Um, and so they baptized these, these children, even though um, they were not believers, there's a whole problem, there's, there's a problem itself in, with infant baptism, but they started treating these people as if they were Christians, because they were baptized in the church. And so you can imagine, after several generations of this, in fact, within a hundred within years, the Christian colony, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, uh, the, the pilgrims and the Puritans, who were uh, kind of uh, lived in those days, rec- came to recognize that their society was spiritually dead. Outwardly, the majority would profess faith in Christ. You would ask them, are you a Christian? They'd say, yes, I'm a Christian. But in reality, they were not. The once vibrant faith of those early settlers was replaced by a spiritual slumber in the colony. One Puritan pastor who recognized the need for revival wrote these words, Many men are in a deep sleep and flatter themselves that God will not deal so harshly with them as to damn them. See, these people thought they were Christians. And they refused to believe that because they weren't living, and they did not come to a conversion, experience Christ, that, that God would damn them to eternity in hell. But that's exactly what was happening for them. This was actually Solomon Stoddard was the, the fa- grandfather of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Jonathan Edwards who would lead the Great Awakening. What happened among the Puritans in the Massachusetts Bay Colony is not a unique experience. Even today, as well as in the days of Israel, outwardly, many profess to be worshipers of the Lord, but in reality, they are not. People live lives thinking that God would never judge them because they profess to be Christians. They maybe prayed a prayer at some point. But inwardly, there is no manifestation of Christ in their lives. And they think that, no, God will not judge them because they have their 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 bookmark or their, their little signature, the date in their Bibles. Or even maybe you were baptized here in this church. But without Christ, without faith, saving faith in Christ, a faith that works, you are very much susceptible and under the judgment of God. To think otherwise would be wrong. The Israelites in Judah and Jerusalem during Isaiah's years of ministry 
were just like the pilgrims. They were spiritually dead. Despite all their outward displays of worship, they still made their sacrifices to God. These beginning verses of Isaiah serve to show us the dangers of being outwardly worshipers of God, but inwardly having no conversion, no repentance and faith in Christ. Inwardly, we are far away, though outwardly we might show up here on Sundays and worship the Lord. It's a reminder for us to for us to guard us from taking God for granted. That we don't take the gospel message for granted. That we don't, because if maybe we are believers, but if we take it for granted, then we may not be as careful in living it out and proclaiming it to our children and the people in the next generation. And if they do not hear the gospel, they will certainly, well, they're not going to come to faith through us. Then they are, married, they are just as likely to be a, gen, a spiritually dead generation that falls into the same path as the Puritans and the Israelites. But here as we come to Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah gives us an introductory chapter. It's In fact, it's, a, it's an introductory chapter of the whole of Isaiah. Many of the themes that we find here in Isaiah chapter 1 are going to be repeated throughout the book of Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah 1 through 5 could be considered an introductory. I was asked, uh, is the Isaiah in a chronological manner? Well, not necessarily, in fact. In fact, we won't find that this chapter 1 uh, may, have taken histor- may have actually been written at the end, after, after all the events that are described in the, in the rest of Isaiah, uh, as, as Isaiah sits down to write and pen this particular chapter. And one major theme that we find here in Isaiah chapter 1 is the theme of Israel's sin, the sinful condition of Judah, that God's people are guilty of rebellion and sin against the Holy One of Israel. And I hope that as we study the Word of God, or this passage, may we examine our own lives for sin. May we not allow ourselves to allow to keep sinning and not repent and confess our sins to the Lord. I want to add just one thing of note, kind of just interpretive uh, comments. I hope to do this throughout our study of Isaiah because Isaiah is so, at least for me, it's very challenging to study. It's, very, it's, it's quite challenging. And it's one of the reasons that Isaiah is challenging to study is the use of figurative language. We just read the scripture passage. I mean, did you not just read some of those figurative languages? What does it mean the ox doesn't know its owner? You know, what, what does that say? What does it mean when we read some of this, uh, like, a, like a hut in a cucumber field. What is that saying? Uh, these are just figurative speech that have some meaning. Well, at least we believe it's figurative speech. We're going to interpret it as such. But how do we interpret it? The Bible has these, uses a lot of figurative speech, and especially the prophets. So, and when we talk with one another, we kind of just intuitively figure out what's figurative language and what's not, right? Well, we kind of know and says, oh, man, oh, man, I'm dead tired. Well, you know, I'm not really dead, right? I'm just like, I'm saying, I'm tired. So I'm like, I'm dying tired. Well, I'm not really dying. Well, I'm dying, but, uh, but I'm, you know, you get it. We use figurative speech all the time. You get it. But um, how do we know then whether a phrase, verse, or passage is to be taken either literally or figuratively? I want to just kind of give, just add a few brief comments. Um, there's a book out there by, written by the late Dr. Roy Zuck. He's a senior professor, professor emeritus of Bible at Dallas, at Dallas Theological Seminary. And he wrote this book, and if you don't have a book on Bible interpretation, hermeneutics, Bible study methods, uh, this is, I recommend this book to you. You should grab it. It's a great, it's a great resource. 
But he gives several guidelines for determining whether, to, whether a figure of speech is, is figurative or it's, or it's not figurative. So how do we tell? He gives us three guidelines. Number one, we should always take a passage in its literal sense, uh, unless there's good reason for doing so otherwise. That is, for us who interpret the scriptures using a literal historical grammatical method of interpretation, that's just, in fact, that's how you interpret one another in regular communication. We interpret one another literally in light of his, history, our history, or whatever historical context we have. We interpret it in light of our, our, uh, the grammar that, one, that we use in our English language. We interpret it in light of all these things. But that's how we interpret the Bible as well. And, and only when something in the context that seems to indicate otherwise that it's figurative, that we should always take it as literal. Okay? Now, the second principle is this. That the figurative sense is intended if the literal would involve an impossibility, an absurdity, or immoral action. Then when God uses a figurative speech and it seems like uh, it, descri- it describes something that's impossible, absurd, or immoral, or sinful, uh, then, then, like, for instance, Jesus says, eat my body, drink, drink my blood. See, that was, well, isn't that cannibalism? Did God, I know God said, don't drink blood, you know. And so, we kind of, that's, that's not right. So the, Jesus must have meant that when he talked about his cup, that it was figurative, right? So these are kind of examples of how you figure out something's figurative. Thirdly, the, I think, and very significant because we see that in our passage today, is that we note that usually following the figurative expression is going to be an explanatory literal statement. That in the, just look in the verse after. Sometimes it's in the verse before, but in this case, in our passage today, we're going to find a verse following that literally explains what the figure of speech means. And so it's, oh, that's figurative for what happens in the next verse, what's explicitly stated in the next verse. Uh, sometimes there's a qualifying adjective that might indicate too, like, um, um, uh, anyways, the living word or something like that. that would, God, Jesus is the living word. He's not actually a word, but he's living, and he speaks to us. And so that's, that's a living. gives us that clue that it's a figure of speech. All right, um, let's go right into this then. So three... A real simple outline. I find my outlines very uh, uncreative these days, but that's okay. Three aspects of Judah's rebellion and sin against God. And the point is we want to pick up, we want to learn, and really be grasp the, the weightiness and the severity of Israel's rebellion and sin. I mean, sometimes I think for most of us, human nature is we don't want to grasp the heaviness of our sin. I think that's our general trait. We want to think, well, I'm not as bad. I'm not as bad as the really that other people in the world are. I'm really, it's, my sin is not as bad as, well, Pastor Henry's sin. He's pretty bad. You know, kind of, we always compare ourselves. But as we look to Israel and we see the weightiness of sin as the people, of, as God's people, we would look to see the, the severity and really the, when we sin as well. Okay? Uh, so let's look at these three aspects of Judah's rebellion and sin against God. Number one, we look at the guilt of God's people. That God here in, the, in Isaiah's prophecy declares the guilt of all of God's people of Judah. It is God himself who explicitly declares the guilt of the Israelites in verses 2 and 3. We see the guilt described. He says, listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for the Lord speaks. So the Lord here calls upon heaven and earth to hear his charge against Judah. Isaiah's vision it's, it's a vision. Remember, this is, this is a vision. These are things he sees. God shows him while waking. And he sees the Lord speaking, however that looks. And he, so he's writing down what the Lord says in his vision. In describing his charge, the Lord uses two images. 
We read them in verse, latter half of verse 2 and 3. Sons I have reared and brought up, but they have revolted against me. That's number one. Secondly, an ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know my, my people do not understand. Now the first image that God uses here is the image of a father and child. He says, sons I have reared and brought up. Now, God did not literally rear up and bring up any sons, okay, as we bring, may bring up sons, in, in, humanly speaking. But Israel was God's sons by divine election and redemption. It was God who chose Abraham, called him out of Ur. It was God who chose Isaac and not Ishmael. It was God who chose Jacob and not Esau. It was God who redeemed the nation from slavery in Egypt and brought them into the promised land. It was God who providentially cared for the nation from its exodus to its entrance into the promised land. It was God who providentially protected the Israelites despite their sin through the periods of judges and kings. We see, that, we see really that God's care for Israel is pictured in the care that parents have for their children. I think many of you out there that are parents understand this. There's a there's a extreme care you give your life you you give your all your energies you know oh man to raising up your children uh, someone told me you never have a good night's sleep again that's once you become a parent uh, this, this is probably true but you, it's because you carefully you want to invest so much in them but yet as parents and some of your older parents could probably would probably testify to this. One of the most painful things for parents is that after you've raised up your children into adulthood is then when you see them turn away from you, right? You see it somehow for some reason or other, maybe because of sin, they walk away. They have a, you have, they, your relationship with them is broken. And that grieves you more than anything else. Because why? Because you've invested so much to care for them. That picture is really implied here in this imagery that God brings. He says, I have treated Israel as my sons. I brought them, reared them, I brought them up. And then God says, but they, the emphasis on they, they, these sons have revolted against me. They rebelled against me. His chosen nation, his people, redeemed from slavery, the ones whom he cared for all their, throughout their history, these are the ones of all people have rebelled against God. It makes it that much more painful for God. The second imagery that we find here of Israel's guilt they is used is the is a master and animals or owner and animals imagery. And I love this imagery because it's like I've never I never seen this phrase until I read it here. I thought, oh, this is awesome. Uh, I like it. It's so picturesque. An ox knows its owner. Oh, that's that's good. That's a Bible trivia question. Uh, where does it say that the ox knows its owner? And a donkey knows its master's manger. God here is saying that even animals, and ox and donkey, by the way, were domesticated animals that, we, that uh, Israel would use to, for various tasks in their, in their home and farms and fields. But even animals like an ox knows who it answers to. It knows who its owner is. Donkeys as well know where to find its daily food, where they get their food from. But God points out that Israel, on the other hand, doesn't even know its owner. Well, they might, they, yes, they say that the Lord is their God. But their life shows 
that they don't know who their owner is. These are God's people. They belong to him who called, redeemed, and cared for them. Yet they don't even understand by their life. They show that they don't understand who has providentially cared for them all throughout their lives. Outwardly, they speak and act as if the Lord is their God. But God says their lives reveal that they don't have a clue. You recall that even last week we talked about the background, that during the reigns of King Uzziah, King Jotham, King Ahaz, one of the characteristics of all of the people and of the kings who, in their failures was that they did not remove the high places, right? The high places were, you know, just, I mean, just think of the last time you went on some tour somewhere to, to China or Asia. And they take you to these mountains. What's on top of the mountains? Temples, right? Temples. Usually high up there, there'd be temples. These are the places where people go worship. And usually it's a great view. I mean, even you think about the Greek, uh, I, think about the, I think it's the Parthenon. It's usually up on a hill, you know, so it would look down. People could go there and, and kind of look down upon people. But these high places were places of idol worship. And so Israel, as we'll see next week, by the way, would offer their sacrifices to God. Uh, you know, uh, they, but then maybe they have did that on the Sabbath or, or did it uh, uh, when they gathered. But yet, during the week, they would go offer uh, their sac- sacrifices and incense to the idols. God is their creator, is their redeemer, and they give thanks to idols? That's the irony of this. The hypocrisy of, of Judah and, and the rest of the Israelites. It shows the severity the, 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 of their guilt. That they are people that should know better. The fact that the, if the nations, the Gentile nations didn't know and understand, they don't worship God, they don't acknowledge God as creator, that's understandable. They're not God's chosen people. But that Israel, God's very chosen people don't know and understand is inexcusable. God had made a covenant relation with Israel. He'd chosen them of all nations in the world to be his people, to be the, to, to bless so that they would be a blessing to the rest of the world. They were to obey his commandments given through Moses, but they rebelled, disobeying his commands, worshiping idols. They were guilty. In verse 4, Isaiah reiterates God's charge and explicitly by the declaration of their guilt. What God describes us of their guilt in verse 2 3 is declared in verse 4. Because here we see an example of uh, it is now literally stated. What's figuratively speak, spoken is now literally stated. Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him, God says. It begins here with four sets of adjectives and nouns. In the very first part of this verse, each noun emphasizes the, great, the privilege of Israel. Listen to these words. They are a nation. Remember, when God made the promise to Abraham, he was just one man with a little family. But God promised to make him into a what? A, a nation. And after when Israel came out of the Exodus, they were a mighty nation. God, they were a people. They were God's people. They were offspring. They were his chosen seed. They were sons They were adopted by him. He treated them as sons. And yet, despite this privilege, they were sinful. They were weighed down with iniquity. They were evildoers. And they acted corruptly. Isaiah then ends these charges, ends with 
ends this verse with three charges against them of their guilt. Number one, they have abandoned the Lord. Instead of seeking him, they had forsaken God. They had deliberately distanced themselves from the Lord. The people of God are to always seek him, not to distance them ourselves from him. Secondly, God charged them that they have despised the Holy One of Israel. That is, instead of loving God, they spurned him. The phrase, the Holy One of Israel, is a key phrase that Isaiah uses throughout the book. I think it's found like 26 times, uh, 26 times in Isaiah alone, and maybe five times in the rest of the Old Testament. But it's a, it's a theme that Isaiah has throughout the book of God's holiness. Remember the call... Well, we will look at eventually the calling of, of Isaiah and before the throne room of God and the angels declare, love, love, love. No, right? Mercy, mercy, mercy. No. Holy, holy, holy. And that's no mistake. It's intentional. It's designed to teach Isaiah and the people he ministered. It's designed to teach us that God is holy, separated from us, set apart from us and all creation, but also morally holy, set apart from sin, and that any sin is an affront against God. Even our littlest of sins is an affront against God, is a violation of his word, is an act of rebellion before an infinite God. And that, and, and that sin against and deserves an eternal judgment. That's, that's really, this, that's what, why God's holiness is emphasized because Israel is just character, their, their life of sin, even though they call on their God, but they don't live like God's holy. Remember um, Leviticus 19.2, uh, Moses tells Israel, God tells Moses to tell Israel, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Therefore, you are to be holy. We are to be holy people. The God's people are to be holy people because God is holy. But God, the, the Israelites were not living holy lives. They were living lives of rebellion. And then thirdly, the condemnation is they have turned away from him. The judgment is that, or the guilt is that they have, instead of turning to him, they turn away from him. This idea of turning is, is to turn in trust. And all throughout Isaiah, we're going to find that these Israelites, the Israelites, it's whenever they found themselves in a difficult place, where do they turn to? They turn to the other nations. They turn to Assyria. They turn to uh, Egypt. They turn to uh, the riches. Hezekiah was like, oh, look how much riches I have. I'm confident I'm safe. They turned to the mighty armies and the, the fortresses and the towers that they would build. They trusted in themselves. That's just so much like, that's humanity for you. We tend to trust ourselves. Even though we know we ought to trust God, but we tend to trust ourselves. We tur- and when we trust in ourselves, we are, in effect, turning away from God. That's what the Israelites did. Um, they acted like they weren't Israelites, like they didn't have a covenant relationship with God. Now, the guilt of the Israelites that we see here in verses 2 through 4 is a sobering reminder for us today. For we, too, are God's people in this dispensation. We, too, are called to be holy as the Lord our God is holy. And if God is our Father and Christ is our Lord, then I ask, do our lives show that we know Christ? Do our lives reflect his holiness? If our lives were to be evaluated, how would it reflect his authority and his lordship over our lives? 
Is our life characterized by pursuing, loving, turning to God, trusting in Him in every aspect of life? Outside of Sunday mornings, I know we come, we're all here today, and so that's commendable. We're here to worship the Lord. But what does your life and our lives say about a relationship with God the rest of the week? Would God say that you have abandoned, despised, and turned away from Him? We know that having just studied uh, the book of James recently, we know the serious danger of having a profession of faith without any manifestation of that faith, a faith that doesn't work. James tells us that such faith is a dead faith, like the later Puritans and like the Israelites of Isaiah's day. And such so-called faith is one that is under the illusion that we think we won't be judged, but we will be judged. And the Israelites were under a judgment. And that's what we see in verses 5 to 7, the judgment of God's people. God, through Isaiah, reveals to Israel, you're being judged. Don't you see it? Why are you continuing in sin? As we look in verse 5. All, as, and this judgment is because, primarily because Israel has broken their covenant relationship. Israel had violated the Mosaic covenant. And, and one of the significant parts of the, the Mosaic covenant is found in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. They're basically identical passages. They, they say the same things. But there we find the promises of God to Israel. After he'd given them all their law, he says, he says to Israel that if you obey my law, you will experience all these blessings. I will bless you. And so that you would be a blessing. But he also says to Israel, if you disobey me, though, I will bring about all these curses. And I just read it just uh, yesterday. I was like, whoa. These are heavy-duty curses. And these were the promises that God made. Uh, this is the part of the Mosaic Covenant for Israel. Keep in mind, it's not, the, it's not our covenant. It's not, for, it's not for us, the church. But this was Israel's covenant. In fact, one of the things in Deuteronomy 28, 15 says this. As an example of the judgment that would come from disobedience. It shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I, with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. That was the warning that God gave to Israel. And so when they violated God, when they rebelled against God, they didn't uh, observe his commandments. They worshipped idols for the, to, even to begin with. God was, began to bring judgment upon Israel, uh, Israel, both northern and southern kingdoms. And just like the previous section... The judgment that God brings is described for us figuratively, in figurative language, in verse 5 and 6. We see the judgment described. Where, actually I want to read it, why will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint, from the sole of the foot even to the head. There is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. I, if you have an ESV or NIV, you would find that uh, the interrogative pronoun there is, is, is translated why. And I'll, I like to take it there that way. It could be translated both where or why, but the majority of translations are why. And I, th- and I, I just think it's um, just I think better fits um, the context here. But you can make an argument for where as well. But the effect is essentially the same. That God is asking a rhetorical question of Israel, of Judah actually. The rhetorical question asks, why does Judah allow itself to be beaten again, to be experience more judgment 
as a result of its continued rebellion against God. Why are you, you're, you're being judged. Why do you continue in this? That's, that's the point we're going, we're going to show. However, as we look to verses, the latter half of verse 5 and, and verse 6, we find here that Isaiah uses the imagery of a human body. And not just any human body, but a human body that's been beaten up pretty badly. This body is in bad shape, as we read here. It's from head to toe. The body is sick. It's faint. It's covered with bruises, welts, and raw wounds. It has open wounds, essentially. And what's more, this body has not received any medical attention. Describe some of the various medical attentions that they gave in those days. Now, if we just took these five, verse 5 to verse 6 by itself, we could read it literally for what it is, that somebody was beaten up. Maybe it was Isaiah. Maybe it was one of the kings. Maybe it was a, a general statement describing the physical conditions of all the Israelites in that day. Perhaps. But when we look at the context, particularly in verse 5 and verse 7, we see a, a, the use of second-person plural pronouns. We, it gives the hint that to interpret this, it, really there's no hint that anybody's been beaten up at this time. Really, God's been talking about you're being stricken again, beaten again, because of your rebellion. And later on in verse 7, we find, just as we learned, we talked about earlier, there's actually an explanation, a literal explanation in verse 7. In verse 7, we'll find an uh, explanation that God is talking about the judgment that he has upon Israel that affects their land. And so, we realize that this is a, a figure of speech. This is a picture of of the devastation of God's judgment upon rebellious Judah. So this, so we read on then in verse 7 where we see the judgment declared or explicitly stated for us. Your land is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. Notice that the subject here is the focus on the land. It's the, your land. It's your cities. It's your fields. And this helps us to confirm that the judgment that is described, the, the, person, the body that's been beaten up, is a figure of speech for the land here. The land that is described in its desolation, in its devouring, in its, in its burn, in its burning, that these match up. Now, the land... Is spoken about because for the Israelite, the land was a very significant part of their covenant promises. Part of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant was the promise of a land, right? That God said to Abraham, "Go, leave Earl counties, and I will take lead you to a, a land that I will show you." So, for every Israelite, part of the covenant relationship with God was this promise of a land, this land that will always belong to them. In fact, it could not even ever be sold for each tribe; they could only you could lease it out and it would eventually come back to you when the, in the year of Jubilee. You could redeem it back to yourself, to your family. Your family was always on it. It's part of your inheritance as an Israelite under the covenant with God. And so for the land to be inflicted in this way, to be desolated, was a demonstration that something was really wrong with their relationship with God, no matter what they were doing. And this kind of an illustration of this is, is husbands and wives. We enter into a covenant relationship with our spouse, right? But husbands, I mean, I hope this is not your experience, but when you come home to the door and you find all your stuff sitting out on the front porch, 
all in front porch. And your wife says, go find a hotel. Or, you know, or, or you, all your sisters, you know, you're not sleeping in bed tonight. You're sleeping on the couch. The bed is part of the covenant relationship with the husbands and wives, right? That's, you know, a marriage bed. We're, it's a shared. Our house is shared. It's part of our relationship. But if all of a sudden you are not, you cannot live with your wife, you're, she kicks you out or, you know, or it could go the other way too, but generally it's the other way. Uh, it shows that something, it shows that, well, and if you say, oh, something wrong with my wife, <laughs> that's why you're, that's why you kicked out. It's because usually you've done something wrong. Usually, and I hope, you know, wives don't take that as, you know, that's not a good way to do it. Let's work through it. Talk, talk it through, okay? Talk about it. Can we go seek some counsel, okay? Talk about it. You are not my enemies, okay? Remember, say that too. Anyways, that's, it reveals that sense of broken relationship, and that's what happens with Israel. Their land has been desolated. They're like, man, why is our land all attacked? Why are the enemies attacking me? Well, because you're in rebellion, Israel. Why are you experiencing God's discipline in your life? Because you're in sin. Because you're in sin. And that's what's happening. That's what happened to Israel. In fact, this was the promise of God in the, in the Mosaic Covenant. Leviticus 26, 33 says, You, however, I will get, it's part of the curse, if they didn't obey, you, however, I would scatter among the nations and will draw the sword after you as your land becomes desolate and your cities become waste. And we see that word. That's really, God will make the land desolate. It's a, really a warning to Israel of the, rebel, the judgment upon the rebellion. In fact, eventually he's going to not just desolate their land, he's going to remove them completely from the land if they, as they continue in sin. So that's what happens to Judah. That's the judgment that they that they are currently experiencing. Now, scholars disagree as to which event this is referring to that is described here in this prophecy. Is it referring to the attacks of, of the Syrian and uh, North Israel alliance that uh, that's described in Isaiah seven, or is it referring to the Syrian king Sennacherib's invasions that are described in Isaiah thirty six to thirty seven? I mean, both could fit, but I think since Isaiah doesn't mention it here. Uh, for our purposes, that's really not the main point of figuring out which one it is. But rather, that we need to understand, or the point is that God judges Judah's rebellion with a desolation of the land. And for, God, for Judah, God's question is, remains loud and clear for them. And that is, why do you continue in your rebellion knowing that God's judgment upon you will only continue? That's the rhetorical question back, in, uh, back early in verse 5. Why do you continue in sin, knowing that God's judgment is upon you? In fact, just for a matter of application for us, that's often the question that, you, that we often as Christians fail to answer ourselves, isn't it? Sometimes when we sin and our Heavenly Father disciplines us because he loves us, he brings us into, into a state of maybe depression, a state of recognizing, oh, I feel sick, I feel anxiety, I feel worry, uh, you can't sleep because of your sin, that you think we would figure that out, but what happens often is that we, we can, instead of repenting, we continue in sin. It really shows this, even sometimes the, the depravity of our hearts and deceitfulness of our hearts in the sense that we would oftentimes love our sin more than we love God. And we hold on to sin. We keep on sin, even as God is disciplining us when God would have us to repent and confess our sins to him. The scary thing is if you belong to God and 
and you are living in sin and you say, well, hey, God actually doesn't discipline me. Wow, isn't that great? Actually, that's, that's the worst. That's a, that's a more serious place to be in, a more severe, because what does that really say about your relationship with God? God disciplines the ones he loves. Well, despite God's severe judgment upon Judah, as God's people, there is always hope. And that's what we find here, the third aspect of God's, uh, of Israel's sin and rebellion against God. That there is hope for God's people. There's the hope for God's people. And Isaiah begins with describing the, the hopeless condition of Jerusalem. Kind of further describing the hopeless condition. This is the result of all that has taken place. There's a hopelessness described in verse 8. And again, this is using figurative language. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. I I kind of smile every time I see the word cucumber. You know, I think, wow, that's trivia for you. Where can you find the word cucumber in the Bible? Okay. (laughs) Isaiah 1.8. Okay. Well, the daughter of Zion here is a reference to basically the people of Jerusalem. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. Uh, the daughter is a kind of a, a personification of, uh, of all the people of, Ju- of, of Judah and Jerusalem, and primarily Jerusalem. But even as applied, it kind of extends sometimes to Israel. And they are described, the people of Israel are described with three pictures, three figures of speech. All three images, shelter, a hut, a city, if we look at them, they are all similar in that they are places of refuge, places of shelter, protection. They are listed, if you can observe them, in order of increasing protection, increasing stability. First is a, as a shelter. It's, it's actually a word for tent. It, when the Israelites celebrated the festival of booths and they just kind of throw up some, you know, some, some wood and some kind of beams and they have some thatch, it's kind of just a temporary kind of uh, uh, shelter out, uh, out in the the outside they were boot, they were tents it was just kind of just enough maybe as they these were shelters in a vineyard you know in the vineyard as you're working you need some place to get out of the sun they would just kind of throw up a little a shelter a little tent where they temporarily would go and you know get out of the, the, uh, the threat of the sun now a watchman's hut in a cucumber field that's it goes a little, it's a little more stable it's it's more than just a tent it's a little more of a hut it's more a little more permanent it's a place where the watchman i guess there were people who could steal cucumbers or maybe animals or something that would go steal cucumbers. So a watchman would be placed in this cucumber field. And there in this hut, the watchman would sit and would be protected from the cold and the elements. And so it's a shelter well, as well as a city. And that's where people would go when threatened by war, threatened by uh, attacks. Many people would run to a city. And oftentimes the city would have a wall. And there they would uh, be protected, relatively seeking, from their enemies. Uh, even uh, while, uh, but this is a besieged city. So the point of, of these structures that we find here of, that are kind of increasing uh, stability, these structures that, that used to describe of the people of Jerusalem is meant to describe or convey the helplessness of those who take shelter in these things from their enemies. Uh, you know, even for sure, a, a tent, a hut, they provide very little protection from your enemies. Even a walled city, though it does provide some protection, but when you are a besieged city, really it's just a matter of time. 
Your enemies can wait you out. Just think of, uh, when you think of uh, the great fortress um, Masada. It was just a matter of time before the Romans uh, just built a little tower. They, they were starving up there before they were, their defeat came. A besieged city, even as mighty as it is, a protection from enemies, was, is none of these things are a protection. There is no place to run from God's judgment. That's the point of this passage. It is a matter of time. God, Israel, you've been under, you are, you are so, ju- your judgment is so severe, your rebellion is continuing, that you really, you guys are in a hopeless situation. You're just like these shelters, like a hut, like a besieged city. It's just a matter of time before you're completely wiped away by God's wrath. But there is hope. There's hope for the people of God. And we see in verse 9, our hope declared. The hope declared. Verse 9 says, the, Isaiah writes, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. I think we all know what Sodom and Gomorrah are. Genesis 19, we, we would read the story there of Sodom and Gomorrah. And because of the wickedness and the depravity that was of the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, God completely, utterly destroyed that city with hail and fire and brimstone, wiped away every, any last vestiges of Sodom and Gomorrah. That would have been Judah and Israel if it, not were, if it were not for the Lord of hosts. If it were not for God intervening in their lives. And that's what the psalmist, that's what Isaiah writes here. Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we're all under the wrath of God. We're all under God's, uh, they're all under God's judgment. We would eventually, as we continue, because they're not turning away from the sin, they're going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. But God is merciful. God is gracious. And he preserves a remnant among Israel. Though the people of God, Judah, continued in their wickedness, and that wickedness called for God's further judgment, God, in his mercy towards them, would preserve a remnant, survivors. These would eventually be called remnants in Isaiah. This will be a a common theme throughout the book of Isaiah as well. But it's a principle that, for the people of God, was very so vital for them, that these people were not repenting of their own, right? They were not going to choose God. They, were, they, they continued living their own life. In fact, that's why God throws them, brings them, sends them into captivity. But God preserves for them a remnant. In fact, God causes a small remnant of Israel to be faithful to him. They themselves would not be faithful, but he causes them to be faithful. He preserves them through, throughout, through his judgment. And many of these faithful Israelites throughout history, and even to this day, God preserves always a faithful remnant of Jewish believers. We call them Messianic Jews today. They are that faithful remnant because God preserves them. They were people like Daniel, people like Esther, people like Ezra and Nehemiah. Jewish people who... God caused to be believers 
and faithful in him, to trust in him, to be worshipers in truth. And this was, and this all happened only because the Lord of hosts did it. For unless the Lord of hosts does it, there would have been no survivors of God's chosen people. And that is the point here. They would have been just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's, and that's kind of our, kind of, that, this principle kind of should reveal a little bit to ourselves, speak to us today. In fact, the Apostle Paul will quote this verse. Uh, verse 9 in Romans 9.29 when we looked at it a couple years ago. See, God in his faithfulness preserves a remnant of faithful Israelites. Yet God has promised to save all of Israel, right? He's, he's going to save all of Israel. But why doesn't he do it? As we learn in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, God is in this dispensation saving Gentiles. He's saving Gentiles like many of you and me here. God in his mercy is saving People who are not of Israel. Yes, he's preserving a remnant. He's withholding his wrath and judgment because God wants to save people from the Gentiles, from the nations. God is saving Gentiles like you and me. And we come to realize that Israel's hope of salvation is also our hope. See, unless the Lord of hosts intervenes to save us from sin, there would not be a single Gentile survivor in this world. We would all be destroyed by God's wrath. We would all be perishing our sin. That's the truth. But this hope is ours because of God's mercy and grace, because he sovereignly chooses people to be saved. You and me and many others that are out there still waiting for us to proclaim the gospel to them. Now this hope that we have is ultimately fulfilled in Christ. It's in Jesus. God has intervened in our lives in sending us his son to die for our sins, to rise from the dead for our justification. He has intervened in causing people who are dead in sin to be alive in Christ. And were it not for Christ, we would all be hopelessly dead in our sins. And that's the truth. We, you know, God didn't look ahead in the future and say, oh, look at Henry. Oh, he's such a good guy. He actually believed in me. I'm going to choose him. No, I would have never chosen God. God chose me from eternity past that I, when I heard, when hearing the gospel preached to me by faithful church brothers and sisters, came to a saving faith and repentance in Christ. And that's what happened to, I trust, the majority of you here gathered. And for this, we ought to praise God and worship him. We should never forget this truth in our lives, that our hope is bound up in Christ. And even when we sin, when we fall into sin, that our hope is still in him, but that our lives should then, it should, our hope, because of our hope, it should motivate us to, to repent and turn away, to not continue in sin as, we, as the Israelites did. Guilt, judgment, and hope. These are the three themes and three aspects of Israel's or Judah's rebellion and sin against God. These are the themes that we find here. These are the themes that we're going to find through the rest of Isaiah. But as Christians for us today, our application for ourselves, our, our take home, if you will, are these. As Christians, may we never forget that all of us here are guilty of sin. We're all guilty. 
You know, sometimes we, it's so easy for Christians, especially if we've been Christian for many years. You, it's easy to look at the world and say, oh, look at those sinners. They're so guilty. God's going to judge them. Well, that's true. It's true. But let's not forget that all of us are guilty too. There's not a single one of us that are not guilty before God. All of us have sinned. Not a single one is not. We all stand guilty before God. And that's what keeps us humble. Secondly, may we never forget that all of us deserve God's judgment. Because of our sin against a holy God, all of us deserve God's judgment. It's not just the sinners out there deserve God's judgment. Sinners, oh, God judges them. We should, we should pray for their repentance. God had mercy upon us, though he, could have, he had every right to judge each and every one of us. But all of us deserve God's judgment. But we found hope in Christ. And may we never forget that all of us have the hope of salvation, eternal life, because of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the grace of our Lord of hosts, the Almighty God, who saves us. Let us never take the mercy of God for granted, brothers and sisters. Let our worship of God be both an outward display as well as an inward reality of our lives. Let us diligently pursue and proclaim Christ. Let us not be deceived. Let us not be spiritually asleep, dead in our sins. Let's make sure we understand the gospel. We know the Lord. We know who our master is. We understand who provides salvation for us. And it is our Lord, our God. That should affect how we live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths. May, may these sobering truths, especially as we speak so much about sin and judgment, that we would not turn our ears off. That we would not say, oh, this is uh, too harsh. That we would allow ourselves to hear the severity of Israel's rebellion and sin. That, Father, you would cause us to wisely see that that is what our lives look like when we disobey you. We who ought to know better, who are your people, who are your elect, who have been saved by grace through faith in Christ, when we allow ourselves to live in sin, we are just as guilty deserving of judgment as the Israelites and Judah in Isaiah's day. Father, grant, give us wisdom to always to appreciate the gospel, to appreciate Christ, to know that we stand before you only clothed in the righteousness of Christ, knowing that we not stand before you because of anything we've done or will ever do, but that we are stand only because of your grace and mercy. And Lord, may this grace and mercy cause us to worship you May cause us desire to live our lives for you. May cause us to tell others about you. So that your name might be praised. Lord, we ask that you would guard us from falling into the same traps, the same dangers that our pilgrim founders and the Israelites in Isaiah's day fell into. Protect us, Father, from these dangers, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.